of Irish Fights Podcast is brought to you by our little store, Blacksmith Trading Company. In the store, you can find our small batch bitters in four unique flavors, citrus, coffee pecan, apple, and our Irish house bitters. Using your next cocktail hour at home. You'll find other items there too, such as men's apothecary, like shaving soap and beard oil, as well as hand-poured candles with whiskey and tobacco scents. Great for your man cave or den. Find out more information at blacksmithtradingco.com or, of course, the home site, Irish Mike Smith. I'm excited to have Rob Stewart, the executive director of New Horizons, a Seattle-based uh, nonprofit uh, with a legacy of working with uh, homeless youth primarily. Um, Rob, I'm super excited to have you and uh, hope to cover some great ground as I respect you, your staff, and, uh, and the ministry nonprofit charity work that you're doing in Seattle. Uh, appreciate you being here. Always good to chat with you, Mike. <laughs> Uh, Rob, tell me a story a little bit about how you got to New Horizons specifically. Some of your, you know, where you grew up, some of your schooling, other experiences that led you to Seattle and and New Horizons. Uh, Where I grew up doesn't particularly have anything to do with Seattle or homeless services. I lived most of my life in Indiana, just north of Indianapolis, a small town. and was originally enrolled in law school right after I went to undergraduate, graduated from Purdue, and then was going to go to uh, law school. And right before I started law school, I just thought to myself, I don't want to do that at all. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. And I went on a, kind of a young man's journey, trying to figure out what that was. with worked with a friend of mine in uh, Arkansas doing carpentry. Still didn't know what I wanted to do, so I went and studied uh, theology out in Los Angeles. And uh, I was there, and I frankly hadn't really been exposed to life in a major urban hub ever. So moving to Los Angeles that was kind of eye-opening just to see how much diversity there was, both in uh, the kinds of people that lived in L.A., also just all of the uh, political and sort of social diversity, which I I thought was really, really interesting. I found myself really wanting to get involved in something that mattered, and I was a little unclear what that would be. Uh, But I had a mentor of mine who actually worked in youth and young adult homelessness in Hollywood for years and founded this really amazing organization. And he invited me to... Uh, go hand out donuts with him in Los Angeles uh, in Skid Row. And so I ended up doing that. And uh, if you've never been to Skid Row in in Los Angeles, there's just so much that is happening there, especially we go in the evening. And uh, I was just blown away that there were so many people that were experiencing homelessness in downtown LA. It kind of never occurred to me that it was such a problem domestically. 
And I, I was kind of just totally uh, blown away and kind of my equilibrium was off when I started to think about the kinds of things that that meant for me and the kinds of things that I wanted to do with my life. And I ended up working at an organization that did services for homeless youth and then through a, a series of different employment opportunities and traveling both back to Indianapolis and Boston, uh, I've kind of worked in both uh, faith communities and human services for the last uh, 15 to 20 years. And uh, I've worked in family homelessness. I've worked in adult homelessness. I've worked with children and early education in homelessness. And now I happen to find myself here. Um, and from my perspective, uh, I think the reason that I ended up leaving the work with family homelessness was that I just felt like the youth in young adult homelessness was just so incredibly interesting. Uh, I think it's really painful. Uh, I think it's also really beautiful. Uh, it's probably the most vulnerable population on our streets. And uh, there is also a huge possibility of a tunnel beauty. And I think that's why I was, was drawn here. I know that's a really long kind of a long version of my story, but that, that, that really is how I kind of was shaped and, and found myself in human service doing this work in Seattle right now. So uh, homelessness in particular, though, must, um, let, let me back up, back up the statement with this. You know, what I've found is that people are drawn to various, you know, charity work, nonprofit work, humanitarian work um, based on either an experience uh, that they have had either personally um, or, you know, their own observation or, you know, as a faith-based person, you know, feel kind of compelled from a higher power uh, to, you know, to to care and to, and to you know, to a, a specific segment of the population. You know, what was you, is that kind of, was you, was that part of your experience or was it just kind of here, here's a need and, and I, I want to help meet it because I think I've got, you know, the the right fit to do so. That's a really good question. Uh, and it's actually something that I've thought about a, a little bit recently. This work has been uh, amazing and also really challenging uh, over this last year. Uh, I always say that a lot of people got into work to do human services, but no one got into human services to do it during COVID. It's been really challenging. And it's been a, an opportunity for me to reevaluate why, why is it that I'm here? What, what, what drew me here in the first place? And, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, I was young when I got into it. And I think there certainly was a sense of the work was romanticized. It, it felt non-traditional. It felt important. Um, it felt like it was a portion of the population that had largely been forgotten and that really resonated with me not because i am particularly or have experienced deep sense of having been forgotten myself but it, it felt like i was serving this kind of unseen unnoticed really beautiful population and i think as a young person that that drew me in and i think both my background in, in faith and kind of all of the story and narrative that is attached to faith, I think, played a significant role in helping me shape that or help shape that volume. But, you know, I, 
think I kind of got into the work initially because I, I just couldn't believe that there were people who were in my community that had been so fundamentally overseen. It was just kind of dumbfounded. And I felt like as a young person, God, we can just do better than that. I feel like we can do better and it's interesting work and I want to be a part of that. And I think it is also those sort of similar sentiments that actually have kept me here for a long time. That's awesome. Um, well, tell me specifically about coming to Seattle. You said you grew up in the Midwest, uh, then were in, was in LA uh, going to theology school or Bible college or whatever it was, and then worked Skid Row and some of the probably poorest of the poor in Los Angeles. Uh, before you jump uh, into Seattle and what brought you up north, tell me a little bit. You told me a story once about, um, you know, setting up, you know, card tables on the street to play games. Tell me, tell me that story real quick. Yeah, I mean, uh, it kind of goes back to the sort of romanticism that I think I had when I first got into this work. It, it, I, I knew that I knew nothing. I knew that I, I had no sense of how I would actually solve homelessness or that it was even potentially solvable. It, it wasn't really even in my framework. I, I knew that there was just a population and I wanted to get to know them somehow. And in, in my really kind of suburban way, I, I thought, God, people like to play games. People want to be in conversation. And so we ended up getting, you know, card tables and games. And, and I, I knew that the only way I could actually connect and understand more about the population was to just sit and have a lot of conversation and to listen well. So we played a lot of games. We would go down a couple times a week, set them up, uh, play games with, with just the, the people that found themselves down there. And I, I just, soon realized that the population uh, was incredibly interesting, that there were such, uh, it was such a cross-section of people who found themselves down there. People who were, um, uh, who had been on the street for a very long time, and then also people who were uh, living in the United States to support families in other countries and doing this incredibly brave and, and noble work of, of trying to support their families. There's such a diverse population and there's something really beautiful about kind of simplicity of, of not knowing what to do and in wanting to learn what it is that people who need the services need. And I think I started just with a lot of conversation, a lot of humility, uh, just trying to create sort of meaningful interactions around things that I, myself, and my friends like. We like to play games. People like to play dominoes. It's a silly, sort of funny <laughs> thing. But for us, it, it was our imperfect entrance into the, into the work. And, and it isn't perfect. I certainly don't tell everyone to go buy card tables and, and you know, play games in you know, places like Skid Row. It, it, for us, it's what we did. It was imperfect, it was broken, but I think in some ways it was kind of a, a beautiful thing, uh, kind of our simple attempt to figure out how to help. Well, sometimes the most beautiful things are simple, right? Uh, yeah. I feel like uh, our sort of greater Christian church, uh, Western Christian church, and even other nonprofits get so 
focused on creating another bell or whistle or some other great program. And sometimes it's the beauty is in the simplicity, uh, especially when it comes down to, you know, bridging a gap or building a relationship with someone that may be res- uh, resistant at first. Yeah, agreed. No, I, I think, it, yeah, for us, I, I look back on that really fondly. I look back and, and, and gosh, I wish I could recapture some of that, that same idealism and compassion that caused me to do that, even though it was probably all that effective. I love that. So what brought you to the Pacific Northwest? Was there a job posting on Monster? I don't even know if Monster is a website anymore, honestly, but I mean, how, how does that work? <laughs> uh, you know, my uh, long story short, I, I was dating a young woman in Los Angeles and um, we uh, ended up getting reconnected after being sort of not a couple for six years. And she was finishing uh, school, getting her, her uh, PhD in, in Boston. And so we reconnected and I knew very few things in my life. Then I was a pastor and I knew that I didn't want to be a pastor for very long. And I knew that I was in love with that woman. So I decided to move to Boston uh, on a lark and got back into human services. And she just happens to be from Seattle, ended up getting a really good job at University of Washington. So we came out here together. Um, and ended up getting married and been here for gosh, seven years. That's what really brought me out here. I was not drawn to a job on Monster. I didn't come to solve any of Seattle's deep sort of entrenched social issues. I, I came out here because I was in love with someone that lived out here, walked the hunters. That's fantastic. So what, what was the state of New Horizons when you got here? And how long ago was that? You know, I was here... I've been here just over three, about three and a half years. You know, New Horizons was, it has been around for over 40 years, about 43 years. Oh, and, wow. you know, at the, at the core of New Horizons, like a lot of organizations, was this really resolute, honest, and sincere desire to be connected, to be where people who are most vulnerable were. That was at the heart of New Horizons. I think for the last 42 years, they were known as doing compassionate work, compassionate work serving a really vulnerable population and and doing it well. Um, When I got in, it was at that time that that New Horizons was really strategically trying to go through a period of growth to move from being a really small organization to one that was larger, had a little more uh, reach into the young adult and uh, homelessness space. And uh, so the organization was under, uh, uh, was just sort of poised for a lot of growth. We ended up and have grown quite a bit over the last three and a half years. And, and that growth has been, you know, expansion of services, growth in staff, um, really digging into the kinds of services and really honing what it is that we feel like we can do and what we do really well. And you know, at the core, I think the idea and the sanctity of, of just like relationship and ethical relationships, it still runs so deep within us. It has a lot to do with kind of the faith tradition. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of that uniqueness that we unapologetically center relationships do that at a really high level. 
but we've also worked really hard to have good outcomes. We have some of the best outcomes in the county. Uh, we house an enormous amount of young people for how small we are as an organization. We do really, really excellent employment services. We run a social enterprise that uh, is a series of coffee shops and roasteries. We, we do some really, really unique and, and beautiful work. And we are, I think, poised to grow again, to dig deep again. And uh, I think there's a lot to uh, be said about the legacy uh, of, of both compassion, generosity, and hope that I think was always embedded at the core horizons. I love that. So if you drill it down just a little bit, um, what would you say the primary purpose of uh, New Horizons is? And how has it evolved since you got here? You touched on it a little bit, but I kind of want to drill down on what I've always felt like the core was, but I'd like to hear it from you. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. We, we just came out of a strategic plan. And part of any good strategic plan is, is to really evaluate that that sort of core component or like your intended impact. What are you actually trying to do and what are you trying to influence? And, and also how, how is it that you do it in a way that is both unique and value add to whatever space you exist in? And for us, it was to really center relationships with the most vulnerable youth and young adults who are experiencing homelessness, but our intended impact is really about getting young people off the streets. The streets are not a good place for anybody. They are not a good place. They are not a healthy place. Overwhelmingly, by an enormous measure, I do not meet young people who wish that they were on the streets. They are traumatic. They are harsh. They are limiting. They're all of the things that we would normally associate with, with the streets and they're exacerbated by about 10 and so our job is really to come alongside young people and get them off the streets and we do it really well but we do it in a way that centers relationship that is really focused on uh, helping young people identify their own capacities identify what it is they want to achieve helping them set very youth-centric goals, goals that are appropriate, driven by them. And we really work hard to help move them as quickly as we can out of this really traumatic situation and get them off the streets. That's a little bit of a shift from how we have been historically. Historically, we really were compassionate in the act of, of generosity, compassion, and serving food. Now, that, that is a good thing, but that's sort of where stopped in some ways. Um, and part of what I think I have brought to the table with the team is to say, it's actually just not good enough. We can actually help get young people out of this. And overwhelmingly, young people are successful. They're some of the most resilient and brave and beautiful people in the world. And we help, you know, 150, 200, 250 young people get off the streets a year. And get into the wrong places. So I mean, that's at the core of what we do. That's awesome. Now, I, I'd always felt like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's kind of a subset of young people that you primarily worked with. Is is that 
Is that true? Still true? Um, and, I, and what I'm referring to is young people that um, you know sort of left the foster system. They turn 18. Uh, they don't uh, now have you know a family or even a state assistance potentially in some situations. Uh, t- tell me about that sort of subset um, of people, or is it just sort of young people that are in need? You know, period, or or is there kind of still a focus on that unique set of 18 to 22 year olds or or what have you? Yeah, that, I mean, we, we serve young people. I mean, within shelter and our case management services, we serve young people from 25. Um, really, providing services to young people under 18 is much more difficult for reasons that are, are, are actually both good and sometimes unfortunate, but it, it is really... Uh, you do not want the homeless services continuum <laughs> being the one that is caring for young minors. It's sort of not where you hope that they get their service. You hope that there's other supportive services beyond shelters that provide really vulnerable children uh, support. Now, for us, it, one of the things that we know has happened over the last 10 years is that youth and young adult who are accessing services uh, are a very different group than they were 10 years ago. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, It used to be thought, just like you said, that the vast majority of young people that were accessing services were directly exited or aged out of the foster care system. What we know now is that 70% of the young people that we serve come from systems that were designed to care and the minority come from foster care. I see. That's the minority. Uh, they're coming from behavioral health, uh, inpatient addiction recovery, inpatient uh, juvenile justice rehabilitation. Um, so they are exiting from those systems directly on the streets. It is not uncommon for a young person to be in an inpatient mental health uh, service and get exited at 18 and have essentially and so they end up coming to new crisis. So the result of that is, is that the, the level of trauma and the complexity of need that we see now is so fundamentally different and exacerbated versus what we saw 10 years ago. 10 years ago, there was a lot more volitional homelessness. It was a short stay, sort of the next step. Yes, young people were exiting the foster care system, but um, the, the kinds of things that had led them there were very different. Now, it's still tragic, but uh, that is one thing that you will see and hear from providers across the youth space is that this work has become endlessly more complex as the young people that are coming to us have much, much, much greater needs. They're often, unfortunately, co-occurring with uh, addiction. Huge issue in our city, the city of Seattle. is, uh, you know, I guess you could say been in the news about that. It's an issue in a lot of big cities. and um, But capturing uh, the hearts and, and lives of young people to kind of break them off, uh, I assume, and I might be speaking out of turn here, you know, either a cycle or a path where the deeper they get down that path, the harder it is to kind of get them out of it. But if you can capture them while they're still young, I remember an anecdote or a quote, I don't please don't look this up because I might be wrong, but people make a a majority of their faith-based decisions before they turn, I think it is age 22. 
And it's not just um, faith, but uh, decisions about who they want to be and how they want to be. A lot of that, and, and it's not across the board 100% true, but I think a lot of groundwork is done by the time that uh, mythical, although it's not mythical, drill frontal cortex gets settled in on a 22 to 25-year-old young person. Uh, much of what they have decided has been uh, uh, sort of uh, settled. Is, it, how would you speak to that? Is that true, not true? Is that one of the reasons why this is a, a subset of uh, of our society that needs, you know, kind of very laser like focused care, or am I getting too no, po I, poetic? I mean, it's it's at the center of a debate that there are some schools of thinking that say, you know, no, we, we would not need unique using young adult services or young adult services that the population be the same. If you are in the youth space, you advocate strongly against that, not because you're looking for work, but because you really understand that there are so many different developmental needs. Uh, and not only developmental needs, but, but causal associations for why young people themselves are homeless are often uh, very trauma-related, uh, often associated with mental health, and there are, yeah, I think there, there is that, that sense that, that the streets, and there's, there's a reality that the streets themselves are unkind. They are not supportive. They are, they are traumatic. And so the longer that people experience homelessness, unfortunately, uh, the trauma is, is often multiplied, making it much more difficult. Now, I mean, back to something you said earlier, it's like there's there's all of these really bizarre narratives that are kind of factually untrue that float around about things like the Seattle is dying narrative and some of these other things. It's like if you work in this space and you have read any data whatsoever, you recognize that it doesn't hold any weight, that, that oftentimes the vast majority of people that are experiencing homelessness, when you look at the entire number of people um, there's so many vast reasons why it's happening one is that seattle has become endlessly more difficult uh difficult to live in to own a, a house to rent in and a couple of regional support systems are not very effective um, but i i would say you know just to kind of name that it's like i i do think addiction and i do think mental health are often associated with homelessness. I think it's probably a little bit, uh, I, it's not something I like to say that it is also more often the cause of homelessness, I would say. Oh, that's, I appreciate you addressing that. There is that uh, narrative out there about the city, um, you know, dying or struggling or not the same as it was. And, and I've gotten, I've been guilty of that myself. You know, I grew up and as a college kid at the University of Washington between 1992 and 96, and then lived another uh, six years after that in the city. Um, and uh, I, I sometimes, as I, I was just in Seattle last night with my sons, we we're doing one of our annual traditions where we go out to the Metropolitan Grill and have a steak and celebrate our, you know, the boys and, you know, this kind of thing. And I just remember going, gosh, I miss the city of Seattle from my from the 90s. So I get caught up in it, too. Because it feels different to me, and I, uh, and yet I want to um, 
And, and I know it's a complicated issue that certain bullet points kind of get driven home a lot in the you know newspaper or media. Uh, even the faith-based community probably calls out things that aren't 100% true. Um, but talking to you, a guy and, and a family and a staff that is on the front lines of this, I mean, you know, how, how do we navigate that? How do we navigate the narrative of, of you know, men and women that we look up to respect or we, we feel like we should be um, listening to? And they must, certainly they must be telling the truth about what's really happening in the city, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is, look, and this is all like my op-ed, it's not exactly... Um, Something that I would say is, this is my opinion, but but I, I will say it and kind of couch it in that, and then also recognize that I would be very open to this. Um, you know, from my perspective, Seattle has always loved the idea that it was a progressive city. And it is progressive about many, many things and often progressive about everything. And in many ways, Seattle is also progressive. You know, when you, when you think about systems that are set up to financially support really vastly growing populations, we don't particularly have that. I mean, we, we don't have income tax. We don't have uh, a lot of the revenue that would come in that needed to come in so that we could build out a right-sized mental health service. Uh, we haven't always historically had um, the kinds of support systems broadly. We do a really bad job with addiction recovery here in the city. We, we have not made those and so I think there has all there has been this thing over the last six years, which is Seattle is saying, hold on, we're always progressive. We've always felt like we've been at the front lines of all of these things. And yet we're faced with the reality that we're one of the worst cities in the entire nation as it relates to homelessness. So we have to create a story to kind of bridge the gap in our mind, that cognitive dissonance of there's no way it's on us. There's no way us as progressive city has created a problem. And I would say we have, we have created a problem. <laughs> we, we know that the vast majority of homelessness that is experienced by people in Seattle is happening to people who have been from Seattle, who are here. We are not importing people because our systems are so good. That is fundamentally not true. If you were a person experiencing homelessness and you wanted to go to a place where you could find it, really, really good support services, I'm telling you, Seattle would not be the first place you come. And yet that is a story. We have to have a story that will allow us to understand that, that we, this sort of progressive city, have actually not done very well by those who are experiencing poverty in our community. We have not done well by that. And we have not created... Uh, city growth strategies that have allowed for equitable growth, we uh, have not done a good job of that. And, and so I, I think we've had to create a story that explained why to us, why it has happened. And I think that story is really generous to ourselves and not necessarily more than that. Wow. 
I, this is a good transition to a, a, a question I've been meaning to ask you since we've met, and, and maybe we've touched on it in the past, maybe we haven't, but I certainly would love to go just a touch deeper on it. And um, one of the things that's, that's important to me, you know, Michael Smith, as I live and breathe, is um, how can I help be a bridge between faith and non-faith-based work, charity work? You know, the, the merge of uh, you know, call it the religious community, uh, and then the civic community. Uh, they haven't always worked well historically. Um, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. How How is New Horizons, um, uh, you know, adapting to that? Or what is the person, what is the philosophy behind sort of networking with the faith and the, and the not faith-based community on this uh, central issue? Well, I, I think it's absolutely incumbent upon our community to solve this issue. It is a community reality. This is something that we have ourselves created or allowed to, to happen in our city. And it is our responsibility. And both faith communities and non-faith communities need to own that we are all healthier when those who are most vulnerable are healthier themselves. And so we need to kind of own that collectively. Yeah, I, I think there is, unfortunately, territorialism. There is uh, this really sort of unfortunate sense on both sides that faith organizations do everything that is so unique and so good, and they are better uh, and more exceptional in some ways than those sort of non-faith-based organizations. Likewise, the same is true. Non-faith-based organizations are looking and saying, I don't, I don't want those reductionistic, um, simple uh, Christian service providers. We don't want that. They're, they're, they're uh, you know, they're not supportive. They're, they often harm people in the process. Like, so both sides have a deep sense And I think one of the things that New Horizons does that's unique is that we live in that liminal space. We, we are an organization that is a Christian organization that is also a progressive Christian organization. That's a head scratcher for the vast majority of people. It's kind of, they don't get it. And we're committed to being the best human service providers in all of Seattle, in all of King County. That's what we want to be. And we don't think those things have to be at odds. We think the work itself of helping people find stability by supporting them in case management, giving them financial assistance and a place to stay, that that is in and of itself a holy act. We don't need to redeem that work, per se, by shrouding loads and loads of language around. Like, that's not what we want to do. We want to just be great at what we do because we think that in and of itself is redemptive, beautiful work. And so I think it is it is a constant opportunity for us to bridge those gaps because if we're going to solve this issue, we need to all be solving it together and in unison. And I think both sides of the equation have not necessarily done a really good job with that. I also think the idea of exceptionalism within the human services space is really something that is pretty unfortunate, that, that we have to create these stories within this work to 
to say why what we do is so exceptional because being exceptional allows you to be funded. And you have to create stories that are both about how good you are and also how good you are in comparison to other people who do the work. We are set up to compete for resources over and against other people. And so we have to come up with any way to explain why we are exceptional. And that may also breed some of this antagonism as it relates between faith communities and, and non-faith communities. But we need churches and synagogues and mosques. We need everyone to come together. This is a huge issue. It's a community crisis. We all need to do it together. Is uh, is there, you know, sort of this woke culture that we've been hearing about, cancel culture, whatever, people are uh, pushing back on different religious organizations because of historical you know, opinions, even modern, you know, opinions about even how people live and things like that. Do you run into that? Or are you able to navigate that process in a progressive city like Seattle? Yeah, I mean, I'm not particularly sure I understand what the woke culture is or like what you would mean by that. I mean, oh, let me give you a specific yeah. example. So in the recently we had the NCAA basketball tournament and uh, uh, Oral Roberts University founded by Earl Roberts, the famous televangelist, uh, um, you know, had done really well. They won a couple of games that nobody expected them to win. And so everybody was talking about it. And there was a, uh, the USA Today uh, had an article that there was a groundswell of people, you know, large or small, I don't know, but the voice was loud for sure, calling for them to be kicked out of the NCAA tournament because Oral Roberts University as an institution um, was against, uh, LGBTQ issues, for example, there were, you know, they, they made stands on other, you know, quote, social issues. Um, and so they wanted them literally to be kicked out of the basketball tournament um, because of, because of, you know, those sort of beliefs and opinions. And, and really, uh, it trickled down to other Catholic schools um, and some of the other, you know, religious um, schools that were in the tournament that says, hey, for example, if you're a Catholic university, well, the Catholic church still teaches, you know, that abortion, you know, you should, you know, so we're talking about the hot issues, right? Um, so how does a faith-based organization navigate that in a city like Seattle that is, as you said, you know, progressive on all of these issues, or, or is it something that just doesn't come up? I mean, is there lack of funding? Is there people that are saying, I'm not sending this person to New Horizon because they have a heritage in the you know, in Christianity or, or something like that? Well, you know, I, that I think is a really good question. And, uh, you know, I, I would say that over the last, you know, four years, five years, New Horizons has, has tried to become relevant to its contemporary organizations. We have really wanted to look across the table at other providers and say, yeah, we're here with you and we're gonna do incredibly high level work. And yeah, we happen to have this big component to what we do. And we are a progressive organization and we honor so many of the similar things we honor and we hold all of those things. You know? And so it's been a very interesting opportunity. And I think if you asked it, other service providers all throughout the, the, the youth continuum, whether they liked us, I think they would say yes. We have really good relationships. Uh, I'm very close with uh, the other executive directors. We meet regularly. We refer all of the time. Um, I would say that there certainly was an opportunity. There was a period of time where that was not true. 
that people did have reticence, that people did have concerns. So I think there's an enormous opportunity to sort of do the hard work of constant bridge building because I, I think that that is ultimately our 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 kind of job and opportunity to build bridges with other great service providers and try to build a continuum that's really, really supportive. Now, do I think there is, uh, I, I, you know, I don't really want to comment on a cancel culture. I mean, like I certainly have opinions on, on a lot of what you just said. Now, I, I would also say that, uh, I, yeah, I guess I don't really have a, a beyond sort of the, the work that I do. I mean, to make comments about like the culture in general is probably not where you really want me to spend a lot of my time. Sure. No, that's fair. I, that was for me, I, uh, from the outside looking in, not on New Horizons in particular, but faith and non-faith based uh, groups working together. It seems like if it's not already an issue, it might become one. And I'm always curious about who the cutting edge leaders are going to be to sort of navigate that process. Hopefully not just give it lip service or or try to be, um, you know, quote unquote political. Uh, and I don't just mean like, you know, party line political. I just mean like trying to be diplomatic political, um, but also to, um, uh, to, to really talk about the issues as they are, or at least learn how to work together. And I think one of the coolest things that you said was, you know, building a bridge between your organization, you know, the organization you work with and the others. Um, and I think at the end of the day, that's probably the only way that we're going to be able to do this. It doesn't seem to me that any one particular engine, uh, organization, including the civic ones, city, state, county, or uh, certainly the feds, you know, have, you know, have the, the right to say that their work is better than the other per se. I think that if you guys come together, like it sounds like you've been working hard to do literally at the street level and then at the bigger level. To me, that sounds like it's the only way we're going to be able to help impact any of these uh, issues or, as you said, crises, you know, in our community. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I, I will say that there have been there are so many social issues as a person who sort of also is from this this faith tradition that is also a progressive person. I would say, and unfortunately, it, it, it feels a little bit like, like the church is coming to the table like many, 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 many years late to say, hey, guys, we want to talk about things now. And it's like, where were you 25 years ago when we wanted to speak in this course? Right. And what people are saying is, we've moved on. We've moved, we're not going back to the conversation. Like you had opportunities to actually meaningfully engage in the conversation and you didn't. So it's time to move on. And I, I think that's sometimes a little hard for the faith community to understand where it's like, I, I don't feel like people are wanting to hear me out, wanting to learn from me, wanting to like understand the nuance of my perspective. And it's like, gosh, where were we in you know, the 80s, where were we in the 90s around uh, LGBTQ rights? Where were we? We weren't talking about it in really meaningful ways. We just sort of landed on a political, sort of ideological, moral statement and said, that is what it is. And we just sort of assumed that the culture would kind of not change. It's changed. And 
frankly, they're not interested in the conversation that's going to take us back. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Um, that's my personal uh, opinion. There's the only way that we're going to be able to grow is by engaging on issues, even that we used to think something different about over historically or upbringing or or our faith community or or whatever. But I want to get I want to move into something else so I can wrap up the conversation because I think it's one of my favorite things about what you guys are doing um, is I'm hoping to extract out of this question um, and share as little or as much as you like. Um, but to 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 make a, an impact on this 18 to 25 year old group of kids in King County, primarily, um, you know, sort of a couple part question, where does the money come from? Where does it go? And then is, is there any a specific story or two that you can share? Um, and here's why I want to ask that. Um, I've been around a lot of nonprofits, faith and non and not faith-based. And um Sometimes there seems to be this, I just want to write a check and not engage, you know, send it from the suburbs to the city and not know what's happening. There's some people like that. I've been guilty of that. There's also, um, you know, sort of a uh, frustration or apprehension to give because people are worried that these nonprofits are staff heavy or top heavy or whatever the phrase is, you know, to make sure that. Uh, the money is not being spent on the cause. And so what I've always appreciated about you and New Horizon is that you have specific anecdotal evidence or or stories of real humans that just needed a niche, you know, some niche help that totally changed the, the course of their, you know, the trajectory over the next several years of their life, hopefully for the rest of it. Th does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, we are funded through pretty diversified funding streams. We have, we have money from the city and the county and the state. Um, we get money from many incredible churches, uh, individual donors, foundations, um, some event works. I mean, so our, 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 our philanthropic kind of, uh, our, our, our work around philanthropy is, is to really have a pretty diverse funding base. I think we do that. And, you know, there, there certainly has been a little bit of a shift in how people understand organizations that they ought to support. Uh, there's been some really good work about, uh, uh, you know, the, the Jim Collins wrote a really interesting book not long, actually quite a while ago now, um, which is good to great in the social service world. He, he really challenges people who have a thinking that organizations that are doing human services should work on the shoestring budget for all of their funding programs. He said that that is a great way to build really, really bad programs. And I think there has been a shift to say we actually have to support and professionalize this work because it's so incredibly difficult and it's very, very complex. And we need well-supported and well-trained staff, well-compensated staff to do it. It's either going to be a profession or it's always going to be this sort of thing where we pay people eight bucks an hour to do this incredibly hard work. And so that's one thing I would say is that we, we work hard to make sure that, that we are building really strong staff to deliver services that are really oriented to young people. And... You know, we are also really 
careful to say that we don't want to build a program just for the sake of the program. Oftentimes, the thing that our young people need is not us. They just need money. And one of the really interesting changes and shifts that's happened over the last 10 to 15 years is that we, we don't look at young people as liabilities who are bound to fail every single time going to reach out the system, but we look at them as assets to say, what if we started with the assumption that these are strong, capable, beautiful young people, and we just listen to what it is that they need? And over the last 10 to 15 years, not just here, but across the entire nation, people have been shouting, what we need most often is just a little bit of flexible cash that we could solve our own homelessness problem. And so there's been an enormous amount of work in that. And we have done a lot of work with both diversion support, uh, cash assistance support, which has really helped us move young people through their own self-direction into housing. And it's been really, really, really effective. And overwhelmingly, they're stable and remain stable. Um, and so there's lots of ways that we can just make sort of small investments in young people, and they are ending up wildly successful. But at the end of the day, we often spend uh, a lot of our money on really incredible staff that are really good at relationships. That's really what we focus on, because at the end of the day, relationship really is so much of the support. And so we really look for great staff and try to support those staff and put them into contact with young people they deeply care about. I love that. I love that. Um, can I ask you a couple of fun questions that I didn't yeah, keep up with? I, I think this is going to catch off guard in a fun way, I hope. Uh, no, I know we get into the deep end of the pool a lot, Rob. I, I love it. Um, but uh, here's a couple of things I like to ask uh, some of my friends that I talk to about these things. Um, uh, and I don't know, you're a busy guy. Maybe you don't get a chance to scroll through the TV very often, but let's say you were. <laughs> Uh, and you're channel surfing, and there's a movie that is uh, that kind of shows up, and you always, no matter what part of the movie it's in, you'll stop and watch it for just even a couple of minutes because you just can't help yourself. Is there a movie that you always land on that always, you know, gets you for a few minutes? Oh, uh, anything cheesy, late '80s, early '90s. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, if I was scrolling and I saw the Karate Kid, I, I'd stay there every time. <laughs> you're the best around such a great such a <laughs> that's awesome i love that uh what's the last book you read oh boy i used to read a ton and then i had a daughter and i read less um <laughs> i influencer Ooh. sort of an interesting book i was just about the power of persuasion. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard of it. I haven't read it, but I've heard good things about it. Um, love that. Um, and what's one of your favorite podcasts or authors just in general that you'll always kind of pay attention to fairly consistently? Podcasts, um, Radio Lab, Serial. Um, I think those are both really good. Um, authors right now that I almost always love i like nick hornby i think he's a great funny character writer um i 
boy, I don't know. I, I, I will, I'm, I used to be a voracious reader, so I would read almost anything. Uh, I like Murakami, sort of a morose guy, so I like reading Murakami. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, last one. What is a gift or skill that you wish you had that you currently don't possess? I wish I was exceptional at math. At what? Math. Math. <laughs> I cannot think of a skill that I, being just an exceptional mathematician that, that I could have to draw on. I, I, I don't know why I would love it. I think I would just love that. That's hilarious. Dig into data. I could get more into science. I, I would love <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Well, uh, Rob, this has been awesome. I appreciate you taking some time. Uh, where can people um, get more information about your work? What's the best place to land? Uh, go to our website. N-H Newton. So it sounds N-H-M-I-N which is, stands for New Horizons Ministries, nhmin.org. They'll find opportunities to donate, get involved potentially. And I know that there happens to be a lot of stories of specific people mm -hmm. uh, that have been impacted through your work and your yeah. team's work, really. Yeah, oh, well. yeah. yeah, they do all of it. I, I just, I, hear the, I hear you. I love it. Rob, I appreciate you taking a few minutes uh, to chat with me. I hope that wasn't too painful. No, it was I good. Just, I love what you're doing, and uh, I, I really feel like more people need to know about it. Um, and I love the work that you're doing within faith and non-faith-based. Yeah. You know, uh, I just love all that stuff. And at the end of the day, you know, relationships are how you make a difference uh, in people's lives. And I think it's fantastic. So awesome. my best to your wife and your daughter, and uh, let's get together for for a beverage or something to eat soon, okay? Would love to. Hey, thank you. All right, man. Cheers. All right. Bye. Bye.